And turn with me for our ongoing study in the book of Romans. Leading us up this morning to enjoying the Lord's Supper together. So we're at chapter 4. And today we're going to, the bulletin says 1 through 8. I'm going to read 1 through 12. So join with me along in your Bibles or in the Pew Bibles in front of you so that we may follow along this argument that Paul is presenting to the Roman church, to us, but ultimately it's God speaking to us through this written word. So, it says in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as, un as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless these words today to our ears and to our hearts and to our minds, to our memory. That Father, we just don't hear them now, but that Lord, you write them deeply in our hearts that, Father, we will not be the same because we have read them again this morning. That your word accomplishes everything that you desire it to do within us. We pray that it would be for your glory and our profit and our gain. Not as the world says profit or gain, but as you desire for us to be blessed, to be gifted, to be glorifying to you to a blessing to each other, to this church, and even to the world around us. So Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain things that stick with, with a person when you read passages. Uh, it happens with different pastors. It happens in Bible studies. It happens in different groups. It happens in different times when you're reading the Word of God by yourself. When somebody said something, you pick on uh, a phrase. For me, uh, what has been interesting um, is if you turn with me to chapter 2, verse 16. of the book of Romans, he says, on that day when according to my gospel, I don't know if you've 
pick that phrase up. Uh, he says it again in chapter 16, verse 25, and in, he says it again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. My gospel, I've, I've just uh, thought about that and, and was wondering why Paul would write something like it was his gospel, like my gospel, and it's, it's a very important idea, and it's a very important thought, is Paul was writing to a group of people, right, a church made up of, evidently we've, we've heard this before, of, of Gentiles and Jews who have come to know Christ, but yet there seems to be a conflict, and that will be certainly uh, shown more clearly as we read this. But again, Paul has gone to, in the very beginning of this book, of this epistle, he's writing to these people that he has not met and has not visited because he did not, uh, was not the one who organized this church. But he knows lots of people there. But he's, he wants to make sure that when he gets there, they all understand where he's coming from. And who else to be able, who better to be able to give us the gospel than the apostle Paul, who had this direct revelation from God, and then also who was used by God to pen the words that we believe to be the very breathed out words of God to us. And so Paul is making sure that as I've said to you before, that if he handed out a three-by-five card to the congregation in the church of Rome, that when he asked them, can you please give me a definition of the gospel, that they would give them a definition of the gospel that came from him and not came from themselves or whoever they read, whoever else they've listened to, Paul is saying, what does the Bible tell us? What does God say to us? What is, the, what is the gospel? And I have to ask you, and I've asked people in my conversations here and other places, what is the gospel? Tell me. When we interview people for taking communion, when we interview people for wanting to become members of the church, it's key. You need to be able to articulate what the gospel is. And it can't be from somebody else that you think has said it uh, in a way that you appreciate. It has to be from the Word of God. And I know that if we go from church to church anywhere, we will get differences of opinions about what the gospel is all about. I've talked to a lot of people. I've heard a lot of answers. And I know there's lots of people who don't get it right and who don't understand it. And they, they fix on something that they like rather than and what appeals to them because that's how they want to, they want to shape God or that's what message they want to think about God but not what the Bible teaches. So, Paul makes sure, as he does in these three instances, that there's an element that is uh, very impressed upon that moment that this is my gospel. Now remember, my gospel contains that we're, that we're all radically corrupt and that we are radically in danger of dying and going to hell because of our sins and suffering the judgment of God by His wrath for our disobedience. And that we need a Savior. And no matter how hard we work, and no matter how hard we try, we can never please God on our own. So what do we do? We trust in the man named Jesus who came and gave His life as an atonement for sin. And so that from that, our sins are forgiven. And that we are now right with God because of Jesus. That's my gospel and more. The resurrection of the body and the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ and the ongoing forgiveness of sins and the 
understanding that we need to to die to self and die to sin, though it's a struggle in our lives. It's much bigger than that, but there is a definition that everyone should know. That our sins have separated us from God. And there is no hope without Jesus. And there is no one to forgive our sins but Jesus. And there is the only, there's no one to give us eternal life and a, and a hope and a joy, and a persevering faith unless we depend upon Jesus. Because everything else is sinking sand. That's what Paul's gospel is. That's why he's presenting it here. That's why it's so important to understand and see for yourself in this book how these arguments are laid out and why Paul is going to great lengths in the book of Romans. This is where... As it said, this is the, 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 uh, the gigantic mountain of all mountains of our faith. This is why he says in chapter 3, where I talked about this, how and so important it is for us to understand when we see verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And he's going to keep on bringing these themes up over and over again. Righteousness apart from the law. There is no distinction. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no, there are no right people and there are, not, there are no uh, only wrong people. There is always, we're all sinners. And then we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And then he goes on, as we looked at uh, last time we were together in October, verses 27 through 31. And in there he asks questions. And Paul asks lots of questions throughout all of his writings. And in the book of Romans, he asked dozens of questions. Dozens. Somebody said 58 to 60 questions he asked. He gives, like, for example, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law or what kind of controlling principle? He said, is it by the law of works? He says, no, but it's the controlling principle to those who are justified by faith is love and faith. Faith in Jesus, not works. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, as Martin Luther said, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And Paul says, yes, of course, the Gentiles also. Since God is one, meaning that there are, not, there are not many plans that God has given to us. There is one plan of salvation, and that's plan A. There is no plan B. There's no escape hatch. There's no trump card. There's no go-out-of-jail card. There's nobody. There's nothing it's one way of salvation from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Who will justify the circumcised by faith? <clears throat> Excuse me, the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Do we nullify the law? Is the law any good at all? What was it given for then? Well, by no means we don't nullify it. On the contrary, we uphold it. Why? Because it's how God wants us to live our lives. The moral law of God is still very, very much a part of our lives, even though Christ has fulfilled it for us. That's why we can't lose our salvation, because of Jesus. And that's why you hear me say that no, God can't love you any more than he loves you right at this moment because of Jesus. 
So now, as I mentioned last time, he then moves forward and then starts, uh, I guess, uh, explaining more of these questions that we have. He gives short answers in verses 27 through 31, but now he gives us a little bit longer, a little bit more meatier questions, gives us some illustrations, confirms it, goes back to it. He goes back to these themes. So the first one was uh, boasting. He goes, why? He goes, what becomes of our boasting? Well, boasting, as we will we we know and we read in the scriptures, that uh, by John, with John the Baptist dealt with this boasting by the Pharisees and the scribes and Jews saying in chapter uh, 3 of Matthew, John the Baptist says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus even explains to them that, I know you think that you're children of Abraham, but by your deeds you don't look like the children of Abraham. So there's boasting in having, God, having the, Abraham as the father of their faith, which is right. Because he is the father of faith. He is the father of the people of Israel. He is someone who is looked up to and the icon of faith. And then he also goes into this chapter when we look at verses 1 through 12. He also brings in David, another icon. He is from the, the, the king of the model of a king a man of God's own, after God's own heart, and who was given in the Old Testament the promise that from his offspring shall come the eternal king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So there is a sense of boasting. There is a sense of having some pride. But that, to the Jew, and Paul is making sure that there is not a boasting about this, but as we've read many times on your own and we've talked about here, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. That I know Him and that He knows me. And so he says in verses uh, 1 and 2, he answers this question about boasting. He says it's excluded. So he goes, and he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the the Bible, for them. Because it said, remember he says it in the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. And he says it as I've read it in chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's going to go back now and give them arguments to these questions that Paul does himself. What he does is go through the possible arguments that people may give. These may have been very arguments or very questions that Paul had to deal with, because remember, how he boasted about in, in, in the Philippians, as Pastor Nate said last week, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? A, the, the righteous above all righteous. He, he was, if there was anybody had impeccable resume and credentials, it was Paul. So he had to agonize and go through this. I mean, you look at the book of Acts where the, 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 the stoning of Stephen, you look at this and here's this person who is who is a heavyweight. I mean, Stephen seems to be the man, seems to be the shining light of the church during this time. 
And Paul is persecuting the church. And they're laying the garments at Paul's feet. And what happens is that he gives the okay to kill Stephen. But yet, does Paul realize that he, in the end, will be, be used by God to ultimately be this shining light within the church for the sake of the kingdom of God? So, imagine Paul thinking about circumcision, thinking about the law, man, brilliant scholar in the law, thinking about him coming and agonizing through these questions. I know, being a very strong Roman Catholic, coming to understand what it meant to follow Jesus alone, to not hanging on or holding on to the sacraments as being, as the theologians say, efficacious, having some effect on my life, making me closer to God, giving up those sacraments that meant so much to me, that was so impressed in my life, that did give me a spiritual life. I'm not negating it, any of it. But to believe that they would make me right with God, to believe that I would have a better place in my heart, with my boasting in my heart, walking with my friends who used to go to the other churches in town, but they weren't like me because I was a Roman Catholic. And I believed, and these other people did not have these sacraments. I felt sorry for my other friends. That's pride, that's boasting, that's misunderstanding what these, these uh, exercises and sacraments were for. Of course, we only have two. But I can see Paul agonizing through these questions and wondering, what do we do with the law? What do we do with circumcision? What do we do with Abraham? Oh, what do we do with, with David? And, and so what does Paul do? He, he goes back to the Old Testament. He says, so what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Okay, he's bringing to everybody. He's talking to everybody here. And he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. But he says, you can't bring that argument to God. Notice he says, but not before God. Not from God's perspective can you boast. Not can you, can you bring all these, all these righteous things that you've done in your life, being a pastor, being a member of a church, holding a, a place in the church, being an altar boy, come, you know, doing all the things that you, that you do and you did, that, you know, I, 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 I followed Christmas and Easter, I, these holy day of obligations Roman Catholics had to follow, right, these days that you had to be in church. And of all the Fridays that I gave up fish, I mean, gave up meat for fish, and of all the fasting and of all the prayers and of all the times that I've done these things, don't they count to anything? And the answer is no, they don't. And so Paul goes back to Abraham. And he goes to Abraham and he, and he says, let me bring up Abraham. Abraham was, is certainly, certainly someone to be looked upon and looked at. Why? Because of his relationship to God. Turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to go through this important uh, dozen chapters in the book of Genesis where it comes to Paul. And it, just to give you some highlights so you see the argument going through when, when, as why Abraham is such an important figure in the history of Judaism and even to Christianity and, and to uh, our, our faith. Notice in chapter 12, he calls Abram. Of course, his name's Abram at the time and not Abraham. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, I will, and, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. And verse, verse 4 says, so Abram went. So this is God's contacting and initiating his relationship with Abram. And then we go to chapter 15. 
And we see in chapter 15 where God makes this covenant with Abraham. And which is quoted in our passage today. Verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And then what does it say? He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And what does it say? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is what we're talking about in justification. And Paul's talking about in the book of Romans is righteousness, having a right relationship with God. That's what justification is. And so then we turn to chapter 17. And what does happens here is that he now makes a covenant with Abraham. And in 17, he gives him the sign of that covenant to let him know that he has been given a sign to remember and for all of us to remember. And for, as it says, an eternal sign. Verse 17. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Work, walk before me and be blameless that I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham, Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name now shall be called Abraham, for I have made you, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see that? It hasn't happened yet, and God declares it as it already has. For I have made you the father. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and the kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations from an everlasting covenant to be to God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for all everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your, you and your offspring and after you. Every male shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought in your money shall bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And so then he goes on into verse chapter 21, and what happens in chapter 21 is now the birth of Isaac. And so we see that God keeps his covenant, and God keeps his promise, and that he does give him an offspring. And then we see in chapter 22 that then, I, then uh, Abraham's faith is tested. So we see how God brought Abraham as being this model, as being this father, as being the, the, the head of, of the nation of Israel and, and, and of, of all the people who call themselves Jews, he is their spiritual father as well as their uh, uh, regular father, their, their flesh, the father of the flesh. So we see that, that this is why, going back to Romans 4, this is why Paul brings up Abram, because 
this is the guy that everybody believes is, is, the, is the one. I mean, he's the one who did everything right. In fact, God loved him so much that he made a covenant with him to be the father of all the nations. But yet, we see here that uh, he says, it's, if Abraham was justified by works, again, going by this justification, and to give you a, 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 a definition from the Westminster Larger Catechism, and if you don't have a copy of it, I would recommend, I mean, especially if you're in this church, <laughs> to be a, a understand what that says because it just defines things. We've been reading it as our responsive readings for months, and it is just such a, a, a great tool and a great tutor for us. And it says, what is justification? That's question number 70. Justification is the act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons all sins and accepts and accounts their whole persons as righteousness in his sight, not for anything worked in them or done by them, but only because of the perfect obedience and the full satisfaction of Christ imputed to them by God, received by faith alone. So the argument is going to Abraham, and he says, if they believe that Abraham was justified by works, because they do, in the, in the Apocrypha, that extra section of, of a Roman Catholic Bible, you'll see in their writings and teachings that say that Abraham is perfect, there is no sin with you, that he's done everything right, he's perfectly followed the law. This is what they believed. This is why Paul, in his argument, goes towards Abraham and really makes a great case. And he says, for if Abraham was justified works, he would have something to boast about, but it wasn't before God. And notice what he says in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Very important statement there, meaning that the Bible still speaks to us. It didn't say what did it, it, it said back then. It says, what is it saying now? The Word of God is living and active. It is still speaking to us. You can read it in the book of Hebrews. You can see it in, in this in, in uh, chapter 10 in a, of, uh, of this book, it talks about this, this speaking as it is speaking to us now from the Old Testament, but speaking to us in the present, as if God is still speaking to us, and he does. So he says, what, what, did, what does the Scripture say to you who are Gentiles and Jews reading this letter? Abraham believed God. That's what, Rome, that's what uh, Genesis 15, 6 quoted from. He believed God, and his belief in God, his trust in God, and his faith in God. Now, we know that Abraham, it doesn't take many verses after all that I've read to you, that Abraham ends up listening. He's listening to God in chapter 12 and 15, and then all of a sudden, it says he listened to the voice of Sarah. And says, We're not gonna, God's not going to give you a son, take my servant. And he goes with, his ser with her servant and makes life miserable in the camp. But he says here that Abraham believed God. And we read, and Abraham went. And Abraham believed. He believed God. And that's what God used to make that connection with God. Abraham faith it wasn't Abraham's faith that saves him because again it is not it is not faith that causes us to be justified it is not faith in the count of faith that we are justified with God faith is not something of its own but it is a connector it is a channel that brings us to God, that connects us with God, is an instrument that God uses. So we can't look upon our faith as something to boast about, because Ephesians 2 tells us that, right? It's a gift. So he says, no, Abraham did not work. In fact, Abraham believed God, and that is what was counted to him as righteous. Now you're going to see in chapter verses 3, 4, 5, 6, uh, and, and even 10, that the word counted is there. And what does the word counted mean? It means 
in, in a theological term, it means imputed. It means accredited. It means reckoned. Let me read to you what uh, Paul says about this term. In, uh, you can write this down in uh, Philemon, verse 18, uh, verse 17. It says, so if you consider me your partner... It's very easy to find because there's no chapter, right? There's only one. So it's verse 17. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. That's what imputation is. That's what counting is. That's what reckoning is. Did Onesimus have the funds? Did he have the ability to, be, to pay back Philemon. Did he have the wherewithal to do that? And that's why Paul writes to him and says, he can't. Put it on my account. Make, let me owe it to you. I will pay for it, he says. That's what accounting is. That's what reckoning is. That's what it is put upon someone's account who can't, does not have the ability to pay it at all. And that's where Abraham realizes he believed that he could not. He believed he could not obey. He could not be perfect. He believed that only God could be trusted in being the one that gave him. Imagine, you're going to be the father of many nations. How can this be? I don't have one kid right now. How can this be? That's why Sarah laughs. It's, it's an impossible thing. But God is trusted. That's what Abraham does. God trusts, a, a trusts God. And that's what's counted to him. That's what's counted to him. Notice in verse 4. No, now, though to the one who works, his wages are not counted. Right? If you work, your employer's obligated. But when, you, when, when it is an act of faith and you don't work, as he says, to the, man, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due, as an obligation. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice that Paul just called Abraham ungodly. I mean, do you think that didn't blow the socks off of some of the Jews and the people who revered Abraham? And, or, and, and maybe he wrote this letter for to some people who misunderstand the gospel and they needed to hear that or maybe people who have just so entrenched and they've got their cleats in the ground and they're not moving and that's why he's writing this letter and to the gentiles to know that what they believed in when they believed in the gospel of jesus was the one who was going to make them right with god that they would have the confidence to believe that and the assurance that's why paul is writing this letter letter so he says Verse 5 again, and to the one who does not work, and he's talking about Abraham, but believes and trusts in God, who is the one who justifies, I don't justify myself, you can't justify yourself, we are, we are unable, the inability to please God is replete through the very first chapter of chapter 1 of the book of Romans. And it says we've all sinned, verse 23 of chapter Three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, Abraham has fallen short. Yes, Jesus' mother has fallen short. Everybody has fallen short. There is nobody full of grace. There is nobody perfect. There is nobody without sin. And yes, that includes Abraham. So his faith, he is an ungodly man. His faith is now credited to righteousness. Meaning that the righteousness that God demands has been provided by God through Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about David. Not only does you're talking about this Abraham, you go to David, who is this, uh, the, the Messiah is, the, is uh, the offspring of, of David is the Messiah, just as David also speaks of blessing of the one to whom God counts or imputes righteousness apart from works. We just read Psalm 32, this man 
is not working in the right direction. He's an ungodly man. He's, he's, a, he's a person who has killed somebody or put that person in the place of being killed. He has gone with and had intimacy with this man's wife. He has done everything that does looks like unrighteous. So where's the work? The work is going in the opposite direction. It's not meritorious work. It is demeriting David. So that's why Paul goes back to David and saying, here's the king of Israel, your beloved king. And he said, blessed are those who are law, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is this person against whom the Lord will not count because our sins are what God counts until Jesus atones for them and takes them away. They are, they are now thrown as far as the east is from the west. They are thrown to the bottom of the sea. They are now not remembered by God any longer. That's how God will not count them again because he doesn't forget them. God can't forget. He doesn't forget. But he desires and promises not to remember them again. So that's where David comes up and it says, wow, David and his sin, though he was a man after God's own heart, was ungodly too. So who do we go to? The only person we can go to is Jesus. Oh, but wait a minute, there's one more thing. He says, let's go to something else you all hang on. Remember the questions here? He says in verse 27, then what do we do of boasting? It's excluded by what kind of principle? The principle of, or the principle of works? He goes, no, it's the principle of faith. That's what, that's what makes Abraham such a, 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 a great example of going back to the law and to the prophets and understanding that you guys have not read your Bible, Paul's saying. Because it's been back there from the very beginning. This is not new. Oh, Nicodemus. You don't understand what it means. You don't understand what the scriptures mean and what they're teaching, he says. That's what Paul is saying. Go back to your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Go to the Old Testament. This isn't new. This is, who, what, this is what grace is. This is what mercy is. This is what justification by faith is. It's not a New Testament word. Imputation of sin, imputation of righteousness is not a New Testament concept. It's throughout the entire Bible. He says then for uh, verse 28, for if we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the, I mean, for we hold to this. This is what they believe. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? What distinguishes Jews from everybody else, this outward sign of circumcision. Now, it wasn't new, right? God used that right. Other people used circumcision to identify themselves, and they, but God took, as he does with other things, he takes the sign of circumcision and now makes it as a sign of a covenant that he uses between, he has and establishes between him and humanity and the followers of Christ and the followers of Abraham. And he says this, he goes, he says, uh, for if God is, is God of the Jews only, he says, oh no, not of God. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And he says, yes. Verse 30, since God is one, and there's only one plan of salvation, and that has always been told from Genesis 3.15, where God will crush the head of the 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 the, um, the seed or the offspring of the I mean of the serpent and that that the serpent will bite the bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, that's the gospel right there. And he says, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Talking about those who are Gentiles, who do not have received circumcision. And he's talking to those who have been circumcised outwardly, but not circumcised inwardly. This is where his argument goes. He says, so verse 9 now, he goes back to verse 29 and 30 to answer that question. And he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? 
or also for the uncircumcised. We say, again, like remember he says in verse 28, for we hold, he's given his conviction. This is a, a confession of faith that he has. And then he goes on, he says, uh, we say that faith was counted to Abraham is righteousness. Well, how then it can, how is it counted to him? How, how is that counted? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? But it was after it was not after, but before he was circumcised. So we see that, the, that in chapter 15, we are told, verse 6 says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then what happens 14 years later in chapter 7 is when the sign of the covenant comes in. So Abraham was ungodly and uncircumcised when he was given that righteous status before God. That's what the argument is here. He says he was ungodly and he was uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal, as a confirmation. We have the, we have the illustration of um, Abraham. We have confirmed again about how no one works for justification. In fact, David and Paul's understanding of Psalm 32 says that David received this righteousness from God because of the confession of his sins before God, knowing that God had held ultimately his eternity in his hands. He received the sign of the circumcision as a confirmation of this righteousness that he held, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose of this was to make him the father of all who believe. So we read in, we read in uh, Ephesians. You turn with me to Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 2. Notice what Paul writes here to elaborate this idea. He says, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. This is a completely physical thing. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now he's talking about continuity here. He is saying there is no Jew and Gentile. It is now everyone is the people of God. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one you new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near for for through him we both have access to one spirit in one spirit to the father so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophet, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God." So we see here that, that what Paul is saying is that to the purpose was to make him now the father. He is father, spiritual father of Jews and Gentiles. For us, Abraham is our spiritual father. Because he was the one who believed, who showed us the very beginning that God used as the example of justification by faith. To make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had 
before he was circumcised. So this was the argument that Paul goes back as we're getting ready for the table. This is the argument that Paul makes with them is that we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to go back to Scripture. We're going to go back and say, what about Abraham? Well, Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. How was David uh, justified? He was justified by faith. What about circumcision? Is circumcision wrong? Was there something, is it done? Is it, is it something that is meaningless? And the answer is no, not meaningless. It was a sign pointing to God's covenant. It's like Susie and I, we're married, we have rings, right? This is a sign of a commitment that we've made to each other. And it's a seal a confirming to the world this is why men who have, who have affairs takes off their rings, right? So nobody knows that there's any confirmating, confirmation of the sign of they're involved with somebody else. Now, if we lose this ring, do we cease being married? And the answer is no, we don't. It's important to us. It costs us money, but I don't look at this and say, wow, this cost me 100 bucks back 40-some years ago right? <laughs> I don't go back and look at that. She doesn't. I hope she doesn't. I mean, if we lose it, it's sad, right? It's, there's value. There's monetary value, and there's, there's real uh, sense of, 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 of memories that it's, it's more, much more meaningful in our hearts. But that doesn't stop us from being married if we lose our wedding bands, the sign was still there. We are still, we are still <laughs> attached to one another. It confirms us, and it's a seal for both of us to remember what words we said to each other. Though, along the way, we aren't always perfect. The same thing with this. Do we, okay, we, 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 what is circumcision? Well, I'm not equating it to baptism here because I don't think it's I don't think it's meant here to talk about baptism. I think what it's meant to be is to talk about our circumcision, I mean, our, uh, our sacraments. Now, we're going to be eating and drinking. Now, I'm hoping that none of you think that this is going to save you, that this is something that now makes us better in the heart of God than we were when we walked in. And that's, that's, this is the elements that shows us, right, the life that God gave to us through his son Jesus, his death, his atoning sacrifice, his shed blood. We not only have forgiveness, our sins have been blotted out. God does no longer count our sins against us. That's what this means. And so when we read it and we say the institution, when we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, that's what it means when we go to this table and we just take it as a matter of road and just forget about what it means. That prepare ourselves before the day before or the time in the morning before we come because this is meaningful. Now, is it important? It's very important in our life. God gave it to us. It's a means of grace. It's our souls are fed through this meal. That's why we don't just Throw it out there for everyone to eat. Call people in the streets. Come here. It has no meaning to them. It has no value. It won't fill my stomach for two seconds. It won't take the dryness in my mouth away from drinking that juice. But it means something. As it meant to the, the Old Testament, as Paul is saying, circumcision was meaningful. It hasn't lost its meaning. But what did it point to? Who did it point to? What does it signify? And so for being in a Reformed Presbyterian church or other Reformed churches that believe in this kind of sovereign grace of God who imputes to us righteousness, as it says in, in first, Second Corinthians 5, what imputation is, and we've mentioned times, right? God made him, Jesus, to be sin. So that we 
may become the righteousness of God. So our sin was imputed to Christ, which means it did not become his sin. And God imputed his righteousness to us, which means that it's your, not you and me that are righteous. We have now righteous standing before God, but we can't claim that righteousness to be mine. It is mine. God looks upon me now as completely innocent of sin, even though he knows I'm a dreadful sinner. But to build that relationship with him in our faith, in our confessions, in our creeds, we say this, is that we understand that justification by faith alone is the very backbone of who we are. And that we don't do this as a memory. But we know that in these elements, we realize the very presence of Christ and what it all stands for, that he is with us while we're eating and drinking together. This is what makes us different. We believe in this power of the presence of Christ. We don't believe that that bread turns into the body of Christ. I don't believe and hope you don't believe that that juice is now the blood of Jesus. It doesn't mean that. It means that now these sign, this sacrament feeds my soul because I remember that it is pointing to Jesus. It is pointing to his life, his death, his love for me when he knows that I still stink of sin. Yet in the eyes of the Father, I have been declared righteous, that I am at peace with God forever because of Jesus. And that's done legally in the courtroom of heaven. No one can take that away, no matter how you feel. There may be people that have prickly feelings and all kinds of feelings. I know that you can get from, you know, from getting in, involved in these, these activities in church. I know I used to feel special, even though it didn't mean what it means to me now. And I'm hoping you realize that's what Paul is saying to the saints there, to the Gentiles, this is great news. Because now, Father Abraham had many sons, Right? And I am one of them, and so are you. Well, sons and daughters. Right? That old song that we used to sing as kids. Oh, I didn't, but our kids, our kids used to sing it. And that's where, that's where Paul is saying that. This is, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This goes all the way back, folks, to the beginning, that this is not new. It was before the law. I mean, the, the law was not given to Abraham, it was not, Abraham didn't have the law. The law didn't come out, as, Gen, as, as Galatians tells us. It was 430 years after Abraham that the law come out. So what, where does Abraham get any credit? So, as you prepare for this, as we get ready for this, I ask you to remember the words of, of uh, to God be the glory so loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. I pray that you see this argument from Paul in the book of Romans to be so integral to our faith and to our body of doctrine and to what it means to see the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That you just don't have one book and then we have another book. We see the continuity from Genesis to Revelation of the love and the redemptive love of God through Jesus Christ from the beginning to end. It was all plan A. And God has opened that up to us by giving us his word, by giving us these sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of of uh, the Lord's Supper, so that we would, as it did for Noah, correct? I mean, Noah was given a sign. What was that sign for? That sign was, he says, it, wasn't, it was for Noah to remember that God remembered. That's what it was. It was so that God remembered that he would never destroy it again. That's what every time he looks up, he has peace in his heart because he realizes that God remembers. And wasn't it great to remember, I mean, that very short phrase in, in, in Genesis where he says, and God remembered Noah. It's always good to know that God didn't forget where he put Noah, right? 
it's always good to know that God always remembers us. And this is what reminds you and me, no matter how cruddy our lives are, and no matter how things are going on in our life, folks, this is, this is the, as we hold, for we know, we hold to this confession of faith, as Romans 8, 28 is going to tell us right on, that nothing can separate us, because God has promised that. Do we believe him? If we believe the gospel, we have to believe that as well. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask your your kindness to us today by your word, by this great apology of Paul, this argumentation of Paul, that we read that he makes this case, that he sets up this case so well against these questions of faith. And Lord, I pray that we ourselves understand the word of God, that we study it, that we are to be approved, that we know what the Bible teaches about salvation, about why Jesus had to be man, why he came to earth. What, is this, what are these things called baptism and sacrament and the, and, and the Lord's communion? What is justification? What is propitiation? What is the atonement? Why is all these sacrifices in the Bible? Lord, I pray that you would help us to collectively gain this year, 2022, collectively gain more wisdom and more understanding and a more desire to understand, to see how this book is connected to one another. How you have been pointing us to Christ from the very beginning and how you have manifested him in such a way that now he lives with us to those who believe, to those who call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. We are now received salvation because of his death on the cross, because his blood washed away our sins, and our sins are never to be remembered again by you, God. What a great blessing that is. Never will we be condemned for them again, because they have been fully condemned in Christ. So, Father, I pray as we gather together to eat and drink that we do it in a way that is glorifying to you, that feeds our hearts and our souls and our faith, and that gives us, Lord, a sense of, of joy in our hearts, even, even if we find ourselves to a place that is difficult or being surrounded with those whom we love are going through struggles. We pray, Father, that you would be with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we ask the...